Hello and welcome to another episode of A Need to Read. I'm Ed Cunningham, your host, and today is a conversation with Tim Marshall. The book Prisoners of Geography is one I read at the back end of last year and it completely transformed my worldview. I think living in Britain or living in the West, it's quite easy to be ignorant to what goes on around the world and of course adding context to what goes on around the world as well. And that's what Prisoners of Geography gave me. So I was super excited to speak to Tim about his newer book, The Power of Geography. Now of course there are some topics that we cover in this conversation that may or may not remain relevant, specifically Ukraine and Russia's situation. There is tension rising, we don't know what's about to happen, so this podcast was recorded on Thursday the 3rd of February 2022. It may or may not remain relevant uh, but what we speak about mostly is the geography and the reason behind the conflict, not necessarily what is going on right now. So just please do bear that in mind when you're listening to this podcast. Now Tim was a diplomatic editor and foreign correspondent for Sky for about 30 years and from then he's moved from news reporting and presenting and he's now pretty much left full-time journalism to concentrate on writing and analysis. Uh, Tim writes a weekly column for Reaction and he can be found on Twitter and the links for those are in the description of this episode. But before we get into the conversation, just a quick story from me. Now, I, like a lot of people, have had a few failures in my time, and there are a few things that I could have done better on, and there are a few things that have gone completely against the way that I wanted them to, and that upset me. And for a long time, I attached to the idea that I was a failure because I had failed. It was a story that I told myself, and I didn't manage to sort of clear through that story and see what actually was happening until I went to therapy. Therapy has completely transformed my life. There are many things, of course, that have transformed my life, but the profound changes from therapy, I don't think you can get anywhere else. It may just take you a longer time, and of course you may reach those points, but there is nothing like chatting to a professional to sort through what's going on in your mind. With that in mind, if you are thinking about therapy, head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read they're a sponsor of the podcast so you would get 10% off your first month and once you've gone through a quick five to ten minute questionnaire you'll be matched with a therapist and you can chat to them within 48 hours so it's cheaper than standard therapy and you get access quicker that is a win-win therapy is amazing I really do think that it can benefit a lot of people especially if you're attaching to these stories that you're telling yourself within your mind and that's getting in the way of your day-to-day life Because let's face it, brains can be tricky sometimes, but it's learning how to manage what happens in your brain that is the most important thing. It's not all happiness and rainbows, and having a good mind management toolkit, that'll set you up for life. Another thing is there is a Reframing Happiness webinar that's going to be run by me on Sunday the 13th of February at 10am GMT. I'll put it at that time so I can cater for audience in the Southern Hemisphere as well as us in the North. If you'd like to join that, there is a link in the description of this episode. And because you listen to my podcast, and of course, I love you, I've put the code PODCAST10 there and that'll get you 10% off the ticket. The pricing is done on a sliding scale for financial inclusivity. So just pay what you think is fair, but also what you think is fair, take 10% off that as well. You absolute legends. I love you. Enjoy the conversation with Tim Marshall. I think with geography, there are a lot of people like me out there who just associated it with learning about rocks and weather systems and colouring in maps at school. And then I read Prisoners of Geography and it completely changed my mind. I was like, oh my God, geography's cool. Geopolitics is cool. I can't believe I didn't know all this stuff before. And I almost felt this sense of like 
superiority over people who didn't know about the world. So <laughs> thank you for writing the book and, and giving me that. Thank you. Have you always been in geography? Is that, I, I know not at all. Told. No. No, not at all. I, I, I pretty much like you. But rocks don't care. Soil samples, boring. And very unfortunately, that is a lot of how it was taught at school when I was a kid. And so it, it you know, didn't really energize me. I was always um, a bit of a nerd in that, you know, I'd always be interested in the longest river and the highest mountain, biggest capital city and that sort of stuff. But that was really taught. You know, you were taught, like in history, you were taught to empathize with ancient Britons in a, in a, in a, in a, in a the times when the Romans were here or something. And I, I couldn't really do that because I was growing up in Leeds in the 1970s. It was kind of, you know, I just wanted to know this happened, then that happened, and then that happened where it was. Sorry, very long answer. My real interest in geography probably only started during the Bosnian War um, in the 90s, when as a reporter, I realized the, the usefulness, A, of understanding the terrain and, and why it was useful to this faction or to that faction, uh, and how it guided a lot of what the military choices were. And that lesson never left me. And so I began to incorporate it more and more. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized that while it, it does not determine exactly what happens, it is one of the determining factors in what has happened and what can happen. Yeah, for sure. It, it definitely seems that there's undertones of military throughout all of all of the book is like, this is, this is where they're positioned. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, I, I think that reflects my, my career because I, I spent so much time covering different conflicts. You know, I, it, it, obviously there are other things, you know, where you're heating it comes from, whether you've got coal or gas or oil. But again, unfortunately, because of my, my career, those things in my world are more often linked to how powerful you are. Mm. And it is this, one of the many stories in history that, that power, uh, does involve weapons and, um, in order to get your power or to keep it, you often have to have them. And so there is this correlation between how powerful you are, let's say as an energy country and how powerful you are as a military country. Norway has got incredible oil reserves and aren't they living off the compound interest of, of selling a few of those yeah, oil forever, Norway, essentially? <laughs> Norway's an interesting example, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's got a very small population um, um, and, and doesn't have ambitions to be a global military power, but it has very successfully uh, used its, its huge sovereign wealth fund, which of course is funded by uh, Norwegian gas to, to make itself, you know, a, a serious player economically. And of course, yeah, economic power does bring you, uh, quite a lot of other power and, and makes you a player, but it's not a player when it comes to, let's say the situation in Ukraine. We're only in three minutes into the conversation. <laughs> so let's, let's touch on it because it's, it's a very relevant time to be looking. And, and I think for people looking to read your book now is an excellent time to do so prisoners of geography and the power of geography i'm i'm about to get into the power of geography mm -hmm. because we're seeing how 
the, the world we know right now and this this peacetime that we're supposedly yeah. in is, is is potentially about to change. I saw the UK has just about sent about two thousand anti tank missiles yes. to to Ukraine. Can you explain? I, I know that you're, you're we're recording a few days ahead of, of um, yeah. You say broadcasting. That's probably the wrong word these days. Publishing. Yeah. So I'll, I'll I'll not talk too much detail about the, the absolute current situation, but I think it might be useful to explain the terrain. And this is actually the first chapter in uh, in Prisoners of Geography, which was written in 2015, 2016. Um, and that was after the annexation of Crimea and the occupation of parts of the Donbass. And I opened with Russia because it is, the, for me, the best example in the world of how the geography of the country uh, explains an awful lot of its history and its current actions. And so I'll try and be brief. The North European Plain is flat from France in a straight line through Poland and then eventually into Russia. And there's a gap between the Baltic Sea and the Carpathian Mountains, just at the end of Poland. And it's 300 miles wide, this gap, and it's the flatland between the sea and the mountains. And if you want to get into Russia in a military way, that's your route for many, many countries. And that is where the route Napoleon took, and it is the route the Germans took twice in the last century. And so, of course, in the Russian psyche, they get very nervous if they see that gap is open. And so they have always tried to plug it, which is why Poland changes shape from time to time. Post-Second, well, post-Cold War, I should say, once they lost their de facto occupation of Poland, their new buffer zone is now closer to them and consists mostly of Ukraine and Belarus. Well, if you lose Ukraine, if it chooses to flip its interests, looking westwards instead of eastwards, you are now feeling very nervous. So I in no way excuse what I regard as Russian aggression, but I completely understand how you can sell Russian action to the Russian people by reminding them of their history and geography. And, and these are the things I think that when you explain them, as well as all the other elements within a story, I think it becomes a lot more simple to understand it. Yeah, for sure. You can definitely tell why there would be some kind of underlying anxiety mm. within Russia. I'm sure that's not a word that they use so much. And <laughs> they're acting before, before that settles in and it, they're looking at it from a logical perspective. Um, but could you just explain the geographical relevance of the Ukraine um, to Russia and yeah, what I mean, it is. And what I mean is actually Ukraine, not the Euro Ukraine. So <laughs> I've recently realised that that's, that's not how you say it. <laughs> the Russians would be happy to. Yeah, the but, but Ukraine is because um, if you look at the root of the word, um, and if you're saying it in Russia, the sense of it might be borderlands, as in the near, abroad, extended of where Russia is, as opposed to a sovereign country, Ukraine. Yeah. So it, it's it's a linguistic uh, issue. I, I did briefly touch on this geography. Once you get through that gap that is Poland, the ground then opens up into flatland and it's basically a thousand miles. And this is a thousand miles of flatland in front of Russia. And when you have been evaded from that direction, it does make you nervous. Now, as I said, I don't think Ukraine is any threat to Russia. I don't think NATO is a threat to Russia, but then you understand why they might do. 
second of three things. So when it flipped in 2014, Russia then lost the port of Sebastopol. Well, it risked losing the port of Sebastopol because it was, it was, it was renting it from Ukraine. It only had about 50 years left on the lease and the entire Black Sea fleet in the only wall water port that Russia had suddenly was in danger. So they invaded it and they annexed it. The last thing, uh, many, but of three, um, in the Russian collective historical memory, where they come from is Ukraine. Kiev Rus in the 12th century is, is essentially the birthplace of Russia because of various problems with various different peoples, including the Mongols. They eventually came back eastward and grew up around Moscow and then spread out from there. But the heartland, you know, from, from their distant ancestors is actually Kiev Rus. And so many Russians regard it as an extension of Russia. And in fact, Putin wrote a, an essay last summer. Um, I don't normally read 7,000 word long essays by Russian presidents, but I <laughs> made an exception for this one. And it is a fascinating read. You can find it in English yeah. where he lays out his rationale of why basically he believes that Ukraine is part of Russia and it would appear he intends to make bits of it Russia. Yeah, it's it's definitely concerning when, for Putin, he's just a person and he just wants to do something. He's a prime minister of a country that he has a responsibility to. But yeah, president. And he this is obviously logical for him. And that's, that's kind of what's scary. And that's where we're. There, there is, there is more to it. And this is where it's not just geography. I, I mean, I, I think the basic underlying rationale is, is what I said, but there's two other big picture things going on here. One, um, the biggest picture of all is that he will not accept the post cold war, let's call it the settlement because Russia never agreed to this settlement. Yeah. He actually does believe in his heart of hearts that it was a terrible idea getting rid of the USSR. Be not because he's a communist, but because he's a Russian nationalist. And that was essentially the Russian empire in a different form. And he believes very strongly that, um, you, the Americans essentially and Europeans should recognize that this is our backyard, our sphere of influence, and you've got no business doing any business there. So please clear off. And by that, I mean the Baltic states, Poland. Romania, Hungary, this is our area. And if you do that, we will have no interests in places like Cuba and Venezuela in Latin America, which they do. And, and actually, I think that's going to be a coming story. Yeah. Uh, the Colombian election this year is an opportunity for Russia to further, further plant itself in Latin America, precisely to say to the Americans, you see, you don't like it. And again, I understand this. Um, so that, that's the second Big picture. And then a third big picture reason is that because he is a sort of dictatorial democrat or a democratic dictator, because it's not a full, you know, it's not a dict full dictatorship quite yet, he cannot really allow right next to him a country of nearly 50 million people to become more Western in its outlook and to be a successful, vibrant economy and democracy, which is what. Ukraine could become because it makes him look pretty bad at home. So there are all these different rationales, um, some more nefarious than others, 
in, in why he has gone on along the course of action that he has. Yeah, and and you mentioned them in in Latin America and in, in Cuba because that's that's where they had their missiles in in the Cold War, right? That's that's where that's right. That, that was the Cuban missile crisis, but also they they've kept very very good relations uh, with with the communists in in Cuba, and they saw the chance. And I'm not criticizing them necessarily above any other countries because all the major powers do things like this. The, you know, the Americans do it, the Chinese do it. But when Hugo Chavez took over in Venezuela and made it a socialist country of Bolivarian principles, the Russians, you know, immediately saw there's a gap there and in they went. Uh, and they're still there and they had very good relationships with Venezuela. And they're talking about putting missiles there. I don't think they will, but I think they will certainly try to get as good, strong military cooperation with Venezuela. And they will be trying to influence the Colombian election this year. Like I said, if, if all the great powers. Yeah. This. It's one, one of many reasons Russia went to Syria, uh, not just because they had a World War to port, but they realized that the Americans wouldn't care, didn't care about Syria. And consequently that left a vacuum in which they, they could jump in with their influence. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's so good to hear it spoken about. And, it, and it's, it's interesting to see how much well, how rational you are about it. And I guess that comes with the more educated you are on these topics is. Well, it, no, thank you. I, I appreciate <laughs> it. I appreciate the compliment, but it, it's, 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 it is rational, but it's also because I genuinely try not to bring my own opinions and emotions mostly uh, into it. Yeah. Because if I, if I just think, oh, this is absolutely terrible that Russia is doing this, then this, that, or the other. I think you can lose, or any country, you can lose sight of, of the rationales of why they're doing it. So, you know, I try as hard as I can to put emotion to one side. Well, obviously, I have, I have opinions about stuff, but, you know, it just doesn't help. I mean, the classic example is the Israeli-Palestine conflict. If you take a side on that and are passionate on one side or the other, you won't really understand the situation because you won't understand the rationales of the other side. So I, I try to step back a bit. Obviously, it's not always easy. Yeah. And and with that, to, to look at it from, from a rational point of view, how do you explain what goes on in Palestine? Because for, for a lot of people around the world, it's just like Jews versus Muslims. Yeah. Well, again, there's the... Um, one of the chapters in Prisoners is... is uh, on, well, it's on the Middle East, and then within it, there is um, quite a lot on, on that. Hard to no, this is the most sensitive subject there is. I mean, it's to be honest with you, it, it should be a relatively minor conflict. I mean, it is in, in stark terms of human losses, it's a relatively minor conflict, but people get far more upset about it than much, much bigger and more serious things. But there are reasons for that. Essentially, it is about land and nationalism. There is a, a difficulty in sharing the land because there is a complete lack of um, acceptance of, of different arguments. I mean, the, the deal is there to be done. Everyone's, everyone can see the outlines of it and have been for decades, but uh, getting there is a different thing because compromise is a very rare element in that part of the world. So essentially, you do have the outlines of a Palestinian state. It is Gaza and then the West Bank. And then in the event of a deal, there would be a corridor, whether it's a massive long four-lane highway tunnel or a highway 
or a, t- or a highway walls that would connect because it's only 23 miles across till yeah. you get to the West Bank. And this would be contiguous territory, which would be hopefully governed by one Palestinian entity, not like two as there are at the moment. And then the rest of the land would be Israel. I mean, that's pretty much the outline we have now, but it's just not officially accepted yes. by either side. The Israelis would not allow the border of the West Bank to be the Jordan River. And the reason for that is, is that the majority of the population of Jordan are Palestinian, or Palestinian heritage, and quite possibly after the deal, you would find an awful lot of arms being smuggled into the West Bank, and this is the last bit of this particular argument. And again, I am not saying this is right or wrong. I'm just saying you need to understand this if you need to understand how to get to this solution. So the Israelis would insist on, let's say, having a mile between the edge of the West Bank border and then where the Jordan border begins, and this would be uh, a gap which they would patrol to stop the smuggling. Why? Because if you do smuggle heavy weapons up onto the West Bank, that is the high ground of Israel, and from the edge of the West Bank to Tel Aviv and the coast is only 12 miles wide. So if you've got any heavy weapons up there, you can fire them down into that 12-mile gap, including Tel Airport. And at that point, because it's only 12 miles wide, Israel at that point, you cut the country in half. So all, all these geographic problems come into play. And if you don't understand those geographic problems, you don't understand all of the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict. Because if you're only concentrating on the, the, the wrongs that have been done, many wrongs have been done, fine. But it doesn't mean you understand everything about now. Yeah, of course. And, and I think for people who do focus on the wrongs that have been done and, and, and look to back in history, it doesn't make you feel proud to be British when you start doing stuff like that. So, Oh, <laughs> yeah, loads of stuff. Um, you know, yeah. But I mean, I, I would argue that goes both ways. You know, there are many things that the, the UK has done in its past which are quite magnificent. And then there are many things that colonial UK has done in its past which are utterly, utterly shameful. Yeah, but yeah. personally, I don't beat myself up about it because I didn't do it. Yeah, exactly. Like we can only deal with what, what the cards that we've been we, dealt there is, with. There is a historic responsibility upon this country in certain areas and certain situations. But what I think is a mistake is if people go so far down that line thinking that they aggregate all responsibility for the, uh, let, let's say, one of the former colonies in India. Yeah. X part of the world, if it's all entirely because of uh, the, the nasty British colonialists, you're not re- you're letting generations of leaders there since independence off off the hook. Yeah. Uh, but I, I would always argue that we do not bequeath a level playing field to most of the countries we left. Yeah, As, uh, when I spoke to Satnam Sanghera, there was something quite nice he said. He said, you, you can't apply modern ethics to history and to feel like this ancestral guilt is is pretty useless. But to educate yourself on, on these matters is quite important. And um, it's interesting you said there about the, the high ground and, and that being quite tactically good in, in, in Gaza and Palestine to aiming the missiles in the, in the in the right place. And I've been reading a book recently, I don't know if you've heard of this, by Toby Ord called The Precipice. 
Uh, it's, it's existential risk in the future of humanity. It's not a light read. It's, it's relatively easy to read, but it doesn't fill you with confidence for the future. But he he's putting nuclear war at odds of about one to a thousand. And, and obviously, should nuclear war kick off, we'll be in store for this nuclear winter, which is famine, crops, death for everyone, essentially. It's, it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> um, and and he's, he's looking at existential risk from a moral point of view in the fact that no one human life is going to be more important than another. So we need to be putting actions in place to, to stop this from happening. This starts probably at the top and, and not at the bottom. But how does geography play a part in, in nuclear war and the countries who hold a lot of nuclear warheads? Well, essentially, geography... Isn't, there is no there is no limiter because if it came to all out nuclear war, it doesn't matter if the only two targets that were hit were say Russia and the US, you know, the classic example, because the amount of warheads launched would be so catastrophic. Because each of each of the warheads now have many many times more explosive power than the Hiroshima bomb. Each one of them has many many times, and there would be she understood thrown around so and that that would probably uh, result in the nuclear winter where you know the, as you say the crops fail etc so geographically you know, limited nuclear war which which uh, very sadly is an option and there are now tactical nuclear weapons with much smaller uh, yields that, that can be used on battlefields um then you are talking about geography, because then you're talking about the limited area that you would strike. For example, you would not be striking Moscow or Washington, because that would be multiple civilian casualties, which then would escalate into the all-out war. So yeah. you're talking about a, a relatively narrow geographically defined area on a battlefield, which um, then also you, you then have to factor in where are these um, missiles coming from. And where are your defensive uh, batteries? So that, that's about the only way. But if you talk about the whole thing, by the way, I, I, I don't know how you can put the risk. I mean, I'm not, I'm not knocking this book. It sounds terrific. Um, but I, I, you know, I mean, it, it, it's either a 0% or 100%. <laughs> if you know what I mean? Yeah, it's either good day. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, I'm a couple of years older than you. And I often countenance people a couple of years younger than me. I was even going to say a couple of decades, but things even brought that in it. Um, don't lose any sleep about it because there's not much point. But also, don't believe old kids who try to worry you because every single generation has people amongst it that say the sky is falling. And it, it hasn't. And it probably won't. But there are, I can understand the... Uh, you know, a lot of younger people thinking, you know, the sky is falling, we're all going to be dead in 10 years. We're probably not. Yeah, I've, I've counterbalanced it with a rational optimist um, by Matt Ridley. So I, I honestly, I, I'm just so grateful that I'm alive right now in the safest, <laughs> the safest time that's ever been. Not, and, never been. So, well, I don't know the safe, not the safest time insofar as it is only in the past 100 years, well, the, the 80 years that we have invented the ability to destroy all of us yeah yeah but leave that to one side oh man this is such a fantastic time to be alive so many people 
in the, in the world, if you're talking about healthcare and, you know, miracles like glasses or uh, yeah. washing machines, or even the miracle of turning a tap on and some clean cold water comes out of it. Yeah. We, we live like kids. <laughs> yeah. You only have to, I, I lived in Bali last year and, and I accidentally sit, took a sip from, from tap water there and I shat myself four times in the following three weeks. So it's, it was a pretty, it was a big mistake. So I'm very grateful for the tap and don't, water. Never used to top tips, no salads and because they washed in water yeah. and no ice cubes. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm very diligent now. I'm always no ice. I've just been in Mexico and I was no ice with everything. Yeah. I'm, I'm easy to dodge a salad as well. That's, that's, that's fine by me. So in terms of where we live and, and being grateful, let's, let's make people feel grateful because Britain's pretty well placed geographically and, and we, we've got it quite good. How has geography played a part in the rise of Britain? Geography's played a part in the science Yes, in every single country, you could read this. There's 193 countries. I, I did about 10 of them in prisoners, and I've done another 10 countries and regions in power. Uh, and one of the chapters in, in the power of geography is, is, is uh, the UK. And um, so, of course, it's true uh, of the UK. The UK is actually quite easy in that it's an island. Um, so, that, you know, you've got a very easy starting point. Well, it's an island, and that's played a role. We explain it all, all the way from uh, forever, but you know, the Spanish Armada preventing an invasion, uh, World War II preventing Hitler's invasion, because he probably, the, the Germans were having blitzkrieged across France and Belgium. If there was a landlord, it would just have kept coming. Yeah. But it was the water that stopped them. So at that level, I would argue also psychologically, it would have had an effect on the Brexit vote. But that links back to the history of the geography, which is precisely because that water did protect the UK several occasions in its past. Not only from, from actual warfare, but perhaps some of the ideas that have infected continental Europe, such as fascism and communism, you know, because many, many of those countries have a long history of both of those afflictions. So I, I think that in an unquantifiable manner, it will have had an effect on, on Brexit. And again, I'm not making a case for or against it. I'm just thinking it had an effect. Yeah. As for some basic geography, a couple of things. One, the rise of the UK, I think you could argue, was accelerated um, by the 1707 Acts of Union with Scotland. Because England up to that point did look both north and then across to the continent. And it had to keep part of its military and its intelligence and all the rest of it looking northwards because there was a constant warring with Scotland. And there was also, and this is equally important, the constant worry that France would invade on two fronts. They'd come across the Channel and they would come over into Scotland and come down through the south with their Scottish allies. Um, the old alliance, but you know, it was a genuine threat. Well, when that back door was shut, at that point, the whole weight of the state, the unified state, can now project more outwards. And I, I think the, the acceleration of British power took off then. Two other ways, briefly. One, going back to where we first began to build an ocean-going navy, 
We had a lot of oak trees. And oak trees, very hard wood. You know, if you've just got bamboo, you're going to be struggling to put together a big 15th century, 1500s warship with cannons on it because it'll sink. So we had, we, had, we, we had lots of oak trees, very hard wood, both good for repelling cannon, cannon, cannon walls up to a point and ramming other ships up to a point. And then centuries later, when we switched from sail to coal power, one we got a lot of, you know, and if we hadn't had those two things, the story of Britain would be very, very different. And again, you know, these things are obvious. So often they're only obvious when you think about them. What that coal and, and, and oak allowed us then to do, including the bad stuff, helped us become such a rich country, which then helped us to become a nuclear country, which for better or worse, made it helped us remain amongst one of the world's leading powers. Yeah, it is so fascinating that Britain is so powerful as a country because we are pretty small, right? And I think going back to Ukraine, Russia have got almost the size of the whole UK military on on the border of that. And yeah, I d- I don't know the the specific numbers about how well, they've got. It's a, at time of recording, it's around one hundred and thirty thousand, which actually which actually is more, and then they're, they're nearly all ground troops. Yeah. And that is, yes, that, that is certainly more than the British Army could field in its entirety. And it's probably as many years. It's approaching, I think, more than the entire British military. But these days, it's less about, it's less about those sorts of numbers in most yeah. scenarios. But, because of technology, but you still can't get past in other scenarios, boots on the ground. And people have been arguing for decades that you don't need lots and lots of boots on the ground. And then the Americans found out in Iraq, you can drive all the way out very quickly. It's the fastest mechanized advance in the history of warfare. But if you're going to stay there, you better have five or 600,000 troops there. Otherwise, you're not going to win. And they, they didn't put in that many. And in the event of an occupation of somewhere like Ukraine, the Russians would find that 130,000, if, if it was the whole of the country, would be nowhere near enough. They would need 500,000, despite all the technology. I remember doing a report when I was still at um, Sky News. And I, I, sorry, I did it a long time working for Sky. But when I was in Baghdad, and we got this amazing footage down this little narrow alleyway of one of the, one of the groups firing an RPG at one of the, not a tank, but one of the armored cars and blowing it up sadly. And we just used it to sort of, to make this argument that the most sophisticated high-tech military in the world can be basically de- defeated by a few guys in, a, in an alleyway with an RPG or with a, a little IED replaced by the side of the road. You know, go to the moon, but you can't sort that out. Yeah, I, I I actually joined the Marines when I left school. Was asked oh, to school essentially, so I joined the Marines. It was it was not one of my great decisions in life. I didn't enjoy it, and I kept getting injured. Luckily, but from from the stories that I I have been told from from people in the military, it's that the people in these countries they they are not tactically sound. They don't seem to be particularly bright, and it doesn't seem to matter that much. Like it, of course it does overall, like they'll win, but like the, these stupid people can cause damage. And it doesn't take a lot to sort of 
point and shoot an RPG and hope for the best. If, if you do that 10 times, something will land. Mm-hmm. And and that's the lives of, of extremely highly trained British, American, Western soldiers. And well, soldiers. I mean, even Kipling knew that. But I forget the, the actual words, but it's something, you know, a, a soldier, an officer. It's, you know, it's written about Afghanistan, I think, and an officer is killed. And it's something about, you know, 2,000 pounds of training taken out by, you know, a one penny bullet, something like that. And obviously the 2,000 these days would be, you know, 200,000 pounds. Yeah. Yeah, it was true very it's true now. Yeah, it's crazy. So, yeah, the, let's go to your experience as a reporter. Were there any other war zones that, you, that you'd went to that you have not necessarily fond memories of? Because pro- probably not on that side of things, but interesting stories or, or a good anecdote from, from your time as a reporter? There was Bosnia, Croatia, Kosovo. Maybe go to, maybe go to Croatia if, if you would, because I, th- I think this is a place that people love going on holiday Croatia. They like Dubrovnik, they like Split, and then they'll be shocked to find that there are bullet holes in the walls <laughs> um, of these little islands. I didn't. I, I, I try not to tell too many war stories because there's too many reporters who sort of we had a joke uh, there was a particular cameraman who we all liked but oh god you couldn't go for a drink without him saying no what are you in boss shut up let's talk about the football I have to remember the most surreal things I remember actually sunbathing on a beach near Dubrovnik during the war we just had a couple of hours you know if you're somebody or whatever and actually seeing missiles come over me, which would be fired from an airport, a small airport about eight miles away. But actually, you know, but sunbathing and watching a missile arc over you towards was utterly surreal. But, you know, there's loads to fly out because war is, as well as the horrible, it is also incredibly surreal at times. And then, yeah, you know, I went on to still Macedonia and then to Afghanistan and then Iraq. And then Syria, Libya, and that, Syria was of course the last one. And then I actually realised that for me, it was all becoming the same. Yeah, I don't mean that um, in a sort of arrogant or yeah, I've done all this before way. I mean I was aware that for the people that I was reporting on or about, this was something new and terrible and awful. But for me, I was just like I've seen this story before. And I know how it ends and I know how it goes. And, and I just thought it's time to stop doing it and let somebody with a fresher pair of eyes have a look. Yeah. How, how do you manage to maintain like calm in those situations? Because it's, it's quite impressive to be armed only with a camera and not a rifle and, and to um, essentially and uh, to keep going back. Denial. Denial. Okay. It's not just a river in Egypt. You know, it's just, no, no, no. This is what happens to other people. I mean, I remember a couple of times being in a, like, I don't know, warrior around with Kamari in the Helmand province. And um, we're trundling along. And I'm very aware that these things get blown up quite a lot. But I'm still sort of thinking, yeah, but, you know, it's not me that gets blown up. It's, you know, it's, it's just denial, basically. And also, you are, it is about um, percentages. You know, you, you are there for two weeks. Um, the people are there for always. And the military, I was, when I was, I was with them, one Scots and the Royal Marines in hell, you know, I was very aware that they were there for six months 
So I've been rocking up to a foot, a, a fort before operating base right out in the boondocks with just like 12 guys and you're just wondering, are they going to come over the walls tonight? And I was very aware that I was just some tourist, you know, yeah. joking up. Well, it is, you, you're a braver man than many. I think a lot of no. people find it hard to be no. rational in that sense. Denial. Denial. Yeah. No. Anyway, moving on. Yes, yeah. Well, you mentioned um, denial, so let's let's talk about Egypt very quickly. That, that was that was quite an interesting part of of prison geography, and I'm, I'm sure again in in the power of geography because there is a power there is a power play there between two two countries, and I don't think a lot of people know about it. So, would you mind touching on that? Yeah, it's, thank you. It's um, one of the chapters in power is is Ethiopia because it is the regional powerhouse uh, and, and power both militarily and uh, point economically in Horn of Africa. And uh, but it's also an example of how geography can be harnessed. I mean, I do have this phrase about you can bend the bars of prison. I don't think you can ever break them because even if you've bent the bars of the prison of the geography, it's still geography that is partly determining what you do. And the example here is the Blue Nile. For millennia, Blue Nile was only useful for washing your clothes, fishing and drinking, which is fine. But in this century, they've built the Grand Renaissance, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, and they're now filling it. And, and what this has given them, and this is how they've bent the bars, but it's still about geography, is that the geography of Ethiopia now, the Blue Nile, comes down from the island, flowing towards Sudan at the border, can be harnessed for hydropower and electricity theoretically to give perhaps free electricity to every house in the country, it's 105 million people, which will transform their lives. And that's very positive. But you alluded to two countries in this. Because down the Nile, after it's joined with the White Nile, and it flows then into Egypt, the majority of water comes from the Blue Nile into Egypt. Well, for the first time in history, someone else has got their hands on the tap. And so Ethiopia theoretically could turn the tap off. Now that would be an act of war and they probably wouldn't do it, but countries don't look about the next five years. They look about the next 50 years and who knows what the situation will be with drought, climate change or whatever, and the, the essential decisions that need to be made in uh, Addis Ababa. You know, they could. And so Egypt has actually threatened war. Uh, about this. They want a treaty which absolutely guarantees X amount of cubic meters, whatever it is, yeah. per year. And they also want to build a military capable of doing something about it if that deal was reneged upon. So, yeah, but again, it's, it's geography, it's distance, it's water flow, and how it affects state power and their relations. Yeah. And uh, do you say in the book, is that funded by China or? The dam. Up to a point, I mean, China's huge in, in Ethiopia. So is Turkey's training in football, UAE, Saudi. I mean, everybody tries to play in Ethiopia because they realize it's power. In fact, the whole, whole of Africa is a, a, an area of interest. Yeah. One of the reasons being the Red Sea, because the Red Sea um, empties, well, it doesn't empty out, it, it, it goes out into uh, the Arabian Sea near the Strait of Hormuz, where so much alcohol and gas comes out of them. And of course, at the other end of the Red Sea, you've got the, the Suez Canal. Yeah. So it's very important for great powers 
to be present there in the Red Sea region um, because you want to make sure that the Suez Canal stays open. We saw last year what happens when some idiot, no, that's not true. When some unfortunate character throws his boat into the side of the, the, the canal. Um, sorry, I, I got distracted. Now, obviously, Ethiopia is landlocked, but nevertheless, it, it is this major power uh, yeah. just adjacent to the, to the Red Sea. So everybody's involved in it, including the Chinese. They're pumping money because they want influence. And the Chinese actually have also just built a, uh, a port in Djibouti which has caught the Americans' attention because they've already got a port there. They are, um, it's, it was eye-opening reading about China book. I've like, my education on China has usually come from South Park and that's just them taking the piss. It'll, although the writers of South Park are clearly incredibly intelligent. They probably killed Kenan, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Like, we've, we've, we've known that for a long time. Um, but yeah, China is, they've got some influence in, and a lot of fingers in a lot of pies in Africa. And I remember going to Zambia in 2015, maybe it was. it was. It was a long time ago, but the infrastructure was incredible. Well, they're, they're and, and, and that was, that was not the Zambians, that, that was the Chinese who are building this. And it's, yeah, that, like, that's a take. You put your finger on a problem there because, well, why shouldn't China be everywhere? They're a global economic power and they will probably be a global military power because it's hard to be a global economic power without um, putting your lily pads that you can bounce off around the globe. Yeah. Exactly what the British did with the COVID stations and that's what the Americans have done with their bases. Why, why, why shouldn't China do that? But what they do, they do a number of things, but let's, let's say two of them. One, they are quite happy to loan you the money to build some infrastructure, uh, often at terms that they've worked out you probably can't afford to pay back. And this is the base in Sri Lanka, the port they, yes, they, yeah. they, they financed. And then when Sri Lanka couldn't pay back, they said, nice port, we'll have it. And you mentioned Zambia. Well, I mean, they're, they're building ports in, in Zambia and in Kenya, I believe, but right across the continent. And they also want the rare earth materials because they, they've cornered the market processing they also have a third of all the rare earth materials that are ground in, in china but as well as that they built up the industry so they, they do a lot of the processing of them but when they go into places because they've got 1.2 billion people they can't give more of them well-paid jobs they often fly in the workforce as well now what good is that to the zambian people a some of the leaders are creaming off the top uh and then b the workforce in many cases is, is Chinese. Even when it is mixed, you'll often find these interesting chaps in uh, tracksuits from China wandering around as uh, security guards, where in fact it is alleged many of them are actually Chinese police officers. Um, it is a form, a form of neocolonialism, you can argue. It's not the same. They don't want territory. They don't just steal it outright the way that um, the Brits and French and others did, but it is not, it is, it is not, it is not usually for the best of the country. And also there, they are at an advantage because many of the modern democracies will go to a developing country and with a contract, but they'll say, can we link this contract? We'll give you good terms to good governance. Put starkly, if you could just pull a, a few less fingernails out, that would be good. Whereas the Chinese just rock on, so you do what you like, we don't care. Here's the yeah. deal. Uh, if you're a dodgy 
leader, it's a fly-blown pseudo-democracy dictatorship, what's the more attractive deal? Yeah, I think the freedom and, and the finances China will bring will probably be the the hand that twists twists the arm there. Um, it's China is definitely a topic that we could stay on for a, for a long time, uh, and I'd, I'd be conscious of of doing so. And, and maybe maybe there'll be a, another book in the future that I can I can bring you back on to talk about. Um, I'm just started writing one last week. Oh, perfect. Well, then there we go. There is another book in the future that we can chat. Well, about. maybe we're focused I'll on. I finish it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like let's just hope for no nuclear winters in between now and then. Absolutely <laughs> won't be. Yeah, let's just talk about the the power of geography and and prisons okay. of geography. Uh, your latest, they're both best selling books, right? You, you've done pretty well. Yeah, power uh, prisoners was was forgive me phenomenally successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thirty different languages, I think, and you know, amazing. I was very pleased. Yeah. Hey, I doubt I doubt will sell as many, but it, it, it has been in the Sunday Times top ten for seventeen weeks, and you know. That is a success. I'll, I'll take that. If it, you know, if it falls out of the top ten next week, so be it. It's you know, I'm I'm very very happy. Yeah, I I, I think that's that's quite an achievement. Seventeen weeks. It's it's not Trump's change, is it? It's it's definitely something. Well, to the, be, again, you know, I mean, forgive me for boasting, um, <laughs> but prisoners was in the top ten for a hundred weeks. It's just incredible. And I think I think what it what it is is that I I do try to give context. You know, I had this phrase in Sky context is key because otherwise it's just, it's just uh, words flashing before your ears, for want of a better phrase. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you don't, you can, and I see it all the time in, in news media, some people are better than others. They just say things and then they move on. And I'm pretty confident that there's large amount of the audience. And, and I don't mean this um, arrogantly. But they will not have fully understood what that sentence means. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you have to dumb down. It just means you're either right in plain simple English, or if there is any concept in that sentence, you do need another sentence to say meaning X, Y, and Z, but without being condescending. I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah. And look, let's face it, our, our, Language is now being condensed down to 240 characters by Twitter. Things are speeding up. Everything has to be... Yes and no. Most people are not on Twitter, but I know I know you. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I I don't know anyone who really likes Twitter, which is which is great. No, do like I, I'm not on it. I am on it, but um, I'm on it because it's a work tool that does alert me to articles and things that I'm, I'm interested in, including, you know, cats and things as well as that. And also, I'll be honest, it, it is a platform, I've got about 30,000 followers, for which thank you to each one, that does allow me to say, oh, I've written this. Yeah, you yeah. Might look at it. You might not, but you might. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's the kind of the way I market stuff, is I'm like, hey, guys, I've done this. It could be good. You might like it. Who knows? What I do not do is tell you what I've had for breakfast. Yeah, no, I actually had to send an apology email out to to my um, followers and listeners to say, look, like, for for a time, I've just forgot. Yeah. You know, when I was younger, we went to a restaurant. You know, we had to we had to bring a camera with us. Camera, we have to take photographs of our dinner, and then we had to send the film off to Boots and get them back three weeks later. Why would you do that? Yeah, it's it's mental, and I definitely feel like I'm I'm getting to a stage of 
don't watch TV, you get square eyes. It's <laughs> it's modern day sort of version of it. Yeah, I am. And I'm I'm pretty happy with that. It seems my life has got better the more cynical I am about modern day technology. So I'm I'm happy the way things go. And and it, look, it's great. It's it's connected me to you, this technology. So thank you so much for coming no, on. Thank you. It's been it's been really good to chat with you. People can find you, of course, on Twitter, but where else would be best? I know you write a weekly column. Uh, oh, thank you. And I do with the reaction.life. There, there is a penny wall. I have a monthly column in the geographical magazine and occasionally a bits and bobs uh, in, in uh, But, you know, the, the, the core of it, of my work is, is now books. Wonderful. And as you've been kind enough, well, there's uh, Christmas geography that's worth coming for, which tends to be about flags, but it's about the fashion reason. There's Divided about all the walls that have come up in this century. Um, oh, dirty northern bastards. Let's not forget that. <laughs> Story of Britain's football chance, which is my favorite book. And the panel of geography. Thank you. Appreciate that. Tim, honestly, it's it's been really cool to chat to you. That that book has completely transformed the way I look at the world, and uh, everyone I've spoken to about it has said it's in in their top ten. So you, well, you've done really know. well with that. Um, no, Jenny, I'm grateful to you for for the interest, uh, because otherwise, you know, what's the point? Well, thank you very much for listening to that episode of the podcast. One of the Things that I love the most there is when Tim talks about context, because context is so important when it comes to learning about what's going on in the world. We're very quick to judge. We uh, we have very short memories in Britain, apparently. And that was one of the main things I got from that conversation is context is so, so important. And some of these countries feel like they got their backs against the wall. I'm not condoning anything that any of these countries do. But I think to look at it dispassionately sometimes is a wise idea. Of course, Stuff happening in Ukraine at the moment is terrible. I don't know what we can do um, apart from hope for the best and sort of hope really that it doesn't go the way that it looks like it's going because that would be terrible for the people of Ukraine and really the people of the world. On a more positive note, thanks for listening. I really enjoyed chatting to Jim and I hope you enjoyed listening to the podcast as well. The links for better help are in the description. The links for the webinar are in the description and there's a link for everything else in there, like the email list, which I suggest you sign up to. But of course, you can do exactly as you please. And in the interest of that, please have a fantastic day. Thanks for listening. Love you. Bye.